0: Alrighty, welcome to the Park Church Podcast. I am your host, James Lapine, and on this show, it's my job to talk with well-known authors, thinkers, and speakers about the intersection of faith and day-to-day life. Our guest on the show today is Kelly Nakundeha. She's the author of Adopted, the Sacrament of Belonging in a Fractured World. So if you are interested in adoption, uh, practically, or uh, the doctrine of adoption, really anything having to do with adoption, you're going to love this episode Kelly is unbelievably uh, thoughtful and wise and helpful uh, as we uh, navigate this this topic so uh, yeah if you are even the slightest bit interested in adoption i would highly encourage you to listen to this whole thing we talked for about 50 minutes uh, but it's all really really good stuff so uh, let's get right into it here is Kelly hey Kelly welcome to the show
1: well thank you for having me
0: we are uh, it's our honor to have you on. Uh, I have to tell you that uh, I emailed a couple, uh, a couple couples in our church uh, and told them that I was interviewing you and sent them a link to your book, and they were so excited uh, to hear more from you about adoption. Um, but I'm sure that there are some of our listeners who, who aren't familiar with you, so uh, could we start off with you just giving us a, a high-level view of your story so far?
1: Sure. Well, I am an adopted person, so I have lived as an adopted person for 48 years. And I adopted two children uh, from Burundi, which is a small country in East Africa, uh, but my children have been home with my husband and I for 12 years. So my experience of family is bookended by adoption. Hmm. Um, the other part of my story is that uh, I am married to Claude, who is a Burundian, and together we do development work on the ground in Burundi. Uh, that is one, that is where we spend most of our time. I go back and forth, but my husband and my kids are firmly planted um, in the Burundian soil. And so my story has me um, you know, between two countries, two different cultures, um And, of course, the experience of adoption is probably one of the most stabilizing forces (laughs) in my life.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. So tell us a little bit about how you met Claude.
1: Sure. Uh, Well, Claude uh, grew up in Burundi, one of those people who grew up less than a a dollar a day. So for us, that is something we hear bandied about, but it was his experience growing up um, extremely poor. Uh, education was his way out. So he made his way to France for university and decided he had no need to ever come to America. And yet he found himself invited to a seminar on reconciliation. And since Burundi really struggles with simple strife, um, rooted in tribalism, uh, they, we wanted him to be part of our conversation. So this little Episcopal church in Santa Barbara, Invited him to come and he came dragging his feet. Um, and he, he likes to say that the only thing he got out of that conference was a post it note with my email address. <laughs> <laughs>
0: because
1: I was at that conference with my boyfriend at the time. <laughs> oh
0: no. Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. So that makes the story even more fun to tell. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. So, so you meet him and you say, let's stay in touch. And then it goes from there.
1: Something similar to that, you know. I had never met somebody from such a foreign place. Hmm. I mean, when he introduced himself and in his country of origin, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know was Burundi was that a city, was that a region, yep. was it a? I had no clue, um, and yet hmm. he had enough English that I was able to access. Uh, his story and we were able to have really wonderful conversations. And so I think he hooked me from the beginning, Hmm. um, in that he allowed me to experience a world that I had never had access to before. So Hmm. that was just the very beginning. And four years later, we would be married.
0: Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I have to admit that, um, in the days leading up to our interview, I Googled Burundi myself cause I wasn't sure where it was or if it was a country or a city. So yeah, I I'm in the same boat as you
2: you are uh, not alone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So like you mentioned, uh, you are adopted, you've adopted now as a mother. Um, and I'm assuming that this is a lot of the inspiration for your book. So can you tell us about what, what compelled you to write this book?
1: Sure. Well, I, maybe several years ago, started to notice a lot of people talking about adoption. Of course, it was my experience growing up, so in that sense, it wasn't new to me. But hearing other people talk about adoption, um, and maybe some of that was because blogging at that time was a big thing, and so there was an explosion of people online writing about their adoption experiences mm. um there were books coming out where people were talking about their you know, the books yes that talked about how to adopt and inspiration for adoption but there were also people writing about their theological reflections on mm. adoption mm. and as i started to read b- these blogs and these books i found that it these did not describe My understanding or experience of adoption. And some of that might have been that most of the people writing the theological reflections were men. Hmm. A lot of them had recently adopted. So maybe they were, maybe they had their kids home a couple of years and so they were new in the experience of adoption. And I just found, wow, living the adopted story was so different than. In terms of shaping my theological understanding that I was reading, uh, and so I started wondering what would be my contribution. Was there a way that I could contribute something that reflected my own experience and my own theological understanding of what it is to be an adopted person? So that was really the beginning for me, is just wanting to contribute my little bit uh, to this ongoing conversation as a as a woman as a mother, as an adopted person, uh, I just thought I had something that I could offer not to change so much as to add to our understanding of adoption.
0: Absolutely. I love that. Um, Oh, sorry. Did I catch you off there? No. Oh, okay. Um, so I was, I, I was going to ask you some very practical, uh, questions about adoption and we can get to those at some point, but I think I'd love to hear a little bit more about your uh, theological understanding of adoption Um, and and not giving it away. Of course, we want folks to get the book and and read everything there. But can you give us a little teaser of of some of the thoughts there?
1: Sure. I think one of the places that I would start uh, is that as I read other people talking about adoption, they seemed to frame it as a mystery, this is something that we do on behalf of orphan children some were even more explicit to say that this is something white american christians do when they do in, when they engage in international adoption mm-hmm. that they would connect it to the mission of the church and even go as far as to say that mission budgets should somehow support international adoptions because in a sense you're you're not just adopting a child, you're you're going to be raising a convert. <laughs> <laughs> and while that's the more explicit conversation and, and there were authors who have written that almost verbatim. I saw that line of thinking even in a lot of the women who were blogging, you know, that this is something I'm doing to help the least of these This is my way of engaging in mission, and I'm going to reach out and and save a child. And my experience was not so much that adoption is a ministry, but that it is a sacrament.
2: Hmm.
1: Now, I have roots in the Catholic Church. That's where my story started, and so that sacramental language is, is familiar to me, but it might be Easier for maybe some of our friends to understand that a sacrament um, is very similar to spiritual formation. What is the the practices that we do on a regular basis that shape and transform us and allow us to experience God's grace in a tangible way? And that was much more how I had experienced adoption. Hmm. Is that I am daily shaped by being a member of this family the hospitality that my parents offer me daily, the um, there is reciprocity, there is uh, solidarity that we engage in together as a family that shapes who I am. But it also shapes who my parents are. It shapes who my aunts and uncles and cousins become because we are all in this together. And so rather than you know, parents... Uh, transforming their children, having that more one-way understanding of adoption, I have always felt that it is much more mutual—the hmm. way that we are transformed and the the way that we come to understand belonging to one another and belonging to God. Because of course, Paul says we are God's adopted ones. That is how we enter into God's family. Right. Right. So that would be my initial
0: response. <laughs> Get us a-
1: started, anyways. You you can take it another. Take us the next step with a good question
0: no no that's 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 so good, <laughs> so helpful um, okay so so actually, what you were talking about there with belonging uh, uh, one of the folks who emailed me uh, had the question how did uh, being adopted impact your integration into your family um, and your sense of belonging there? What was that experience like for you mm-hmm. well
1: this pretty much is the premise of my book, or at least how I organize my thoughts about adoption, is that it is a sacrament of belonging. Mm. So when, and I start off by thinking about the very beginning, which is when you're relinquished. Mm. So before anything, before you're brought home, somebody has let you go. And to me, that is a very important part of the story that we ought not rush past, Uh, that somehow part of belonging is being let go, mm. and I think we can see other aspects in our life where relinquishment comes comes to play. But once one woman had relinquished me, then somebody else steps in to receive me, to offer that welcome. Yeah, and there we start to to feel the kind of belonging that is more familiar to us. That somebody has welcomed me, even though I have. Nothing in common with them biologically. Um, and of course, with my own children, we don't even share a you know an ethnicity or a cultural background. All of this, you know, is foreign to me, and yet we agree to be fam- or I initiate us becoming family with an extreme gesture of welcome. Mm-hmm. And then you have not just days, not just weeks, but years. Of hospitality what I like to call durable hospitality where every day my mom and dad show up at the breakfast table carpool pickup homework chores around the house helping me when I'm sick I mean every single day there is this gracious acceptance Mm -hmm. of who I am and how I am part of this family and I think sometimes we don't fully appreciate how important the dailiness of hospitality is. Uh, in the Old Testament, we hear the word hesed, which is God showing up in faithful, reliable ways. And I think that that is the way that my parents showed up for me, hmm. that they have displayed God's hesed in very tangible I would say, incarnational ways, so that I knew I belonged. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, there are very practical things. Um, we celebrated my adoption day every year for 48 years. <laughs> April 28th is a holy day in our family. And there are gifts and grasshopper pie and <laughs> anything else that is one of my favorites. Um, uh, always on. becomes part uh,
0: what is grasshopper pie? You can't just <laughs> <say>. <laughs> <laughs> I know.
1: Well, it is a minty green uh pie. Okay. So the filling is this wonderful minty green kind of chiffon looking uh filling. Oreo cookie crust.
0: Ooh. So
1: you basically have that chocolate mint thing going on.
0: Okay. All right, got it. Okay.
1: It has a funky name, just makes it all the more
0: fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this annual celebration of of this right. marker, yeah.
1: Which I think always communicated to me early on that adoption was something positive, something we could celebrate, something we could talk about, hmm. and people didn't seize up. You didn't get the sense that. I had said a bad word, or that somebody was nervous hmm. when I when we talked about the way that our family was shaped uh, through adoption. Um, but that was just a very practical way of making sure that I knew that we could talk about all the parts of my story hmm. that brought me into this family. Hmm. Um, so I, I think these are ways that we we feel belonging. Um, I do, I do my part, which is just like my parents adopted me. At some point, I reciprocate. So not only have they said, you're our daughter, but through my actions, I show you're my mom and dad. Mm-hmm. I adopt you back. And that is part of the way that we are mutually transforming one another, that we are belonging to each other. Uh, so I, that is just as important. The fact that I was able to respond and participate hmm. in the adoptive loop, so to speak.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. So many questions coming to mind as you're talking. I think, <laughs> no, it's it's wonderful stuff. I think people definitely do feel that thing that you were talking about—that seizing up whenever the A word gets gets mentioned. Right. Um, yes. So, talk us through. Uh, what that first conversation was like for you whenever you had the you are adopted conversation with your mom and dad, and then maybe what that looked like with, with your kids?
1: Sure. Maybe this will tell you a fair amount in that I don't remember huh. when the first conversation was. Okay, I don't, re- I don't remember a time when adoption wasn't part of our vocabulary. It was that natural. It was that commonplace. That we would talk about adoption. Not that we talked about it every day, but it was something that could come up as we were driving, you know, to dinner. It could come up when we were sitting, um, you know, just sitting together outside on a Saturday afternoon. It 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 wasn't something that required an occasion.
2: Hmm.
1: Uh, Of course, we had one that we celebrated, but you know, it was very common to mm-hmm. say something about my birth mother or to make a joke about the fact that uh, you know, obviously you know, obviously I didn't get my dimples from my mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or obviously I didn't get, you know, they're, they're both are early morning people and I am not. <laughs> and so there was always a bit of a joke like, oh, well we know that you didn't get that, you know, I didn't get that gene from you guys. Right. Um, but by ta- by being able to to have it as part of our regular conversation, it took away any stigma, any awkwardness. So it never felt clumsy on my tongue to be able to say that I was adopted or to ask questions. Um, and I really didn't understand how unique that was until I went to elementary school. <laughs> because I would have kids ask me, Oh, did your mom and dad find you on the doorstep? Did somebody? you out of a dumpster oh wow and yeah, I was like oh these kids have no idea where babies come from <laughs> especially <laughs> not adopted ones right
0: <laughs>
1: so I became an ambassador for adoption at a very early
0: age yeah yeah wow
1: <laughs> but I would say the same for my kids ever since they were home it was just how God put our family together and we celebrate their adoption day Um, we talk quite a bit about our birth mothers. Um, since now three people in my family, right, myself and my two children, all of us are adopted, all of us have birth moms, um, and so this has become very common Hmm. for us to talk about and uh you know, I had a dream about my birth mom last night, mom, and you know, so we'll talk about that or um you know so for us I think just making it so common really did help take away the sting for the harder conversations, which do come. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, You talked a lot about birth moms. What is, I know this, well, I think this varies from story to story, but uh, a a relationship with the, the biological family or the birth mom, what does that look like or not look like?
1: Well, I can't really speak to uh, an actual ongoing present tense relationship in that uh, none of us have it. Okay, right. Gotcha. I, my I was the product of a closed adoption, and so all the records are still sealed to this day, and so I have no idea who my birth family is. Huh. Um, my daughter has lost her birth parents, both of them died of HIV AIDS. And so she knows that part of her story, uh, that she does not have her parents. Um, And my son was abandoned um, on a roadside. Hmm. So we don't know if his parents, I'm assuming that they are still alive, but probably living uh, in extreme poverty, their neighborhood is right next to the neighborhood my husband grew up in. And so chances are they're from that same demographic. Um, So there's a chance that he could potentially um, find his birth family in the future. But as of yet, none of us have walked into that present tense reality and had to negotiate uh, what we would call more of an open adoption.
0: Okay, okay, gotcha. Um, Okay, I like this question a lot uh, that someone emailed in. They said, are there specific truths that should be repeated to an adopted child. Um, and, and they also said, what about linking the doctrine of adoption with their story? What, what does that look like for you?
1: Mm, there's a few good questions in there, actually. <laughs> um, I, I mean, some of this is probably pretty straightforward, which is always talking about the way that God has shaped our family, mm. um, that you belong here. This was something in God's wide, generous imagination. (laughs) (laughs) We get to be together. And one of my children in particular needs to hear more often. And part of this is also just, you know, when we talk about love languages, he really needs to hear that affirmative reminder. You know, you belong. Mm. This is your family. You never have to worry. Um, about bad behavior or whatnot, um, popping you out of this family. This is where you know you belong. Yeah. Uh my daughter doesn't need as much of that kind of affirmation, but she you know, there are other ways in which, you know, she needs to be reminded um that she is always included, that that she's never she's never gonna lose me. Mm-hmm in the sense that I would walk away from her. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, really that is one of the most basic and to some degree, every child is going to need different messages. Um, I often talk about adoption, not being monolithic, right there. there There's so many, every adoption is a unique story and a unique experience. Um, we may have some universals but for the most part you really do have to see what your own child hmm. what do they need to to have affirmed yeah. and that you know, every parent has to be aware of that adopted or not the things our children need to feel safe and to feel like they are locked into the love that our family uh, seeks to provide mm-hmm. I know that for my son in particular one of the very helpful frames for him has been the story of Moses.
2: Hmm.
1: So with Moses, we see kind of the archetype of an adopted family. We see a uh, his family of origin. We see the woman who steps in as an adoptive parent. We even get a glimpse of Moses as an adopted adult, wrestling with his two different identities. And I have found that to be so helpful for me. But my son, I don't I can't tell you how many times we rehearse parts of that story together.
2: Hmm.
1: And it has given him language to understand. You know, when we talk about what was happening in Egypt at the time that that baby boy was born, we talk about the injustice. Hmm. What was happening in the brickyards of Egypt that a woman would would have to relinquish her child? Yeah. Right? So then he understands, oh, well, my mom, she grew up in a poor neighborhood. Maybe she couldn't afford to feed me, and she was afraid. Hmm. Right? So that helps him to realize that she didn't let him go because she didn't like him or because she didn't love him. But it's starting to help him understand that there were other circumstances at work. That for her, the greatest act of love was relinquishing him. Mm. Not because she didn't love him, but because she did. Mm. And she wanted for him a family that could feed him and love him uh, and give him resources that she herself didn't have. That helps him to recognize she wasn't a bad person. And I'm not a bad person. It's just that this injustice that impinges upon birth moms. Sometimes we just don't expect love to look like relinquishment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that doesn't make it any easier, but I think it has helped him to understand that she did love me. And she probably is a very good person, uh, just struggling with some really hard stuff. Yeah. So that has been really helpful for him as he wrestles a lot more with the relinquishment piece. Uh,
0: that's, that's powerful. And, and I was going to ask uh, a question about how you, how you work through potential bitterness um, mm-hmm. or, or feelings of abandonment or whatever. So I think uh, that right. helps a lot. Um, yeah. I don't know if you, if you have more there, go for it. Um, if not, I'll take this <laughs> in a, in a different direction.
1: Well, here again, I would want to remind um, folks in the company of the adopted, as I like to say, (laughs) all of us, all of us respond differently to relinquishment. So for me, it was never painful. Um, I knew that I was, obviously, I recognized that I had to be let go before my parents could um, reach out and bring me home. But it never was something that was hurtful to me or it never bothered me. I just figured that this woman must have done the best that she could. I was grateful that she had an, a, an adoption agency, you know, kind of already in the mix so that there was the smooth transition for me. And I always felt like that, that was enough. That was what she could do. She was faithful. Um, and by God's grace, I've had a wonderful family. So I was never upset or bothered. But my children have a very different uh, way of understanding their birth parents, and they've each struggled in different ways than I did. Hmm. So, you know, as an adoptive parent, you know, one of the first things I learned is that I have to allow them to have their own experience um, and not try and force them to see adoption or feel it the way I did. I mean, the first time that my son told me that he missed his birth mom, everything in me wanted to tell him oh no no you shouldn't feel that way <laughs> don't worry about her cuz i wanted him to have the experience i had yeah and i really think it was the holy spirit that that stepped in and kind of you know kind of put put uh, their hand on my put the, the spirit put his or her hand on my mouth like no nope, don't say anything more <laughs> let him have his own experience right right and so um i think that's real important to recognize not all of us struggle with being relinquished and some of us do and both of those are perfectly natural responses um, but for my kids coming up with language was really helpful and so like I said for my son that story from Exodus has been the most helpful because it actually is so similar to the world that he lives in in Burundi
2: mm-hmm.
1: where there are people who are that poor that would have to make that kind of choice, um, that is familiar to him. And when we can talk about the injustice, it allows it, him in particular. Um, he understands, wow, she was really struggling with lots of other things, and that made her love look different. Yeah. And yeah. You know, I think that's helpful for kids because then they don't. Every kid wants to love their mom, even their birth mom. And this allows him to still love her and see her goodness. Um, and yet that doesn't put her in opposition to me. Mm. Uh, you know, we talk about you have two moms and that's okay. Mm. I'm not threatened by the fact that, that she's there. I feel like I'm working in partnership with her. I'm doing what she wishes she could do. And so we talk about how we are partners in this. And so then he knows, oh, I can talk about both my mom's. And that seems to help him. There again, as a kid, they don't want to have to choose between which mom they love more.
0: Yeah, yeah. So. That's good. That's, That's yeah, thank you. Um, What have been the challenges associated with raising uh, adopted children of a different ethnicity?
1: I have a unique uh, opportunity in that my husband is the same ethnic background and the same skin color as my children. Mm-hmm. So there are times when we are all together as a foursome, um, that in a sense, I'm the odd, I'm the odd one out. Yeah. Right. They're all beautiful, burnished Brown. Uh, <laughs> th- right. They all have that beautiful luster about them. And I'm the little white spot. Um, <laughs> I'm the, I'm the, I'm the one who's on the margins. Um, but then there are times when I'm alone with the kids and have often been in the States where it's just been me and my two uh, black beauties uh, where obviously I'm the white mom with two black children. Mm. So I feel like I have some very different experiences of what it is to be involved in a what we would say a transracial adoption or biracial adoption. Mm. Um, when I am with my kids without my husband, um, I recognize people treat us differently. It's so interesting. Um, you, you know, you can walk through Target, and people, white people, will look at me like, "Wow, that's so great!" It's like they're kind of giving you the thumbs up. you are like, "Yeah, you're just like Madonna and, and Angelina Jolie. You're so cool." <laughs> Which, I mean, is a, it's problematic in other ways, but and then I will, but in the same. Trip, you know, a few aisles over, we walk by an African American family, and I get a very different reaction. Hmm. You know, I get looked up and down like, mm, "There's a white girl with all her privilege and all her stuff trying to save some more black people." You know, hmm. Hmm. and usually it's not very favorable. It's it's very interesting. You just get different, and I want I should be careful to not stereotype, but that has been at least in Arizona, that's been my experience, is that even on the face of it, people respond differently um, before they even know us or know our story. Yeah. Uh, I imagine that that is something, you know, even my kids internalize in different ways. Um, so I remember the time that my daughter said, Mom, I just want to be white like you.
2: Hmm.
1: And, oh, one part of me understood that every little girl wants to be like her mom and yet it also broke my heart because i want her to love being who she is with her beautiful skin and her beautiful heritage uh and i was a little afraid did i do something that made her think uh that my skin color was better than hers because i try really hard to not do that but um uh, and and i don't really have an answer to it other than to say i remember that moment feeling that sting like oh yeah. is this something yeah. simple like she just wants to be like me or is this something deeper uh, and for me it just meant i wanted to pay much more attention um to make sure that i was definitely affirming the beauty of her culture um yeah i just felt like it meant i had to pay much more attention I think as a white mother of brown children, the onus is on us to do our work. And and by that, I mean we really have to engage with issues of our white privilege. We really have to be wondering if we have a bit of a savior complex that we need to be dismantling. We need to really be open to the fact that we could have latent forms of Xenophobia and racism just from growing up in our culture. Nothing on purpose, nothing that we would ever say. But I started to, to feel that the spirit was convicting me in small moments, that there were little bits of that in me. Um, and boy, I want my kids to be raised, you know, to love Jesus and to know that they are loved as they are for who they are. So I better be doing my work to make sure that I don't become an impediment hmm. as they grow up to understand what it is to be a brown person in this world. So I think we have to be willing um, for the Spirit to say some hard things to us um, so that we do not become an impediment as our children come yeah. to understand that they, you know, my, my children are Burundian and American, right? Hmm. I want them to feel both of those things are good and God-given.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's good. Um, okay, let's let's do this. uh... I'll ask you one more question about adoption, and then I always like to close with a couple rapid fire questions that are completely unrelated <laughs> to the topic.
2: Oh, okay.
0: Uh, and then <laughs> and then I'll let you go. Uh, sure. So this last question is about money. Um, it, I don't know what your experience is with this, but some people can afford adoption on their own. Um, others right. can't. Do you have any suggestions for when and how to invite other folks into uh, the financial aspect of adoption?
1: I'm going to be really, I'm going to be a disappointment here because I don't. Okay. Um, that just wasn't. For, for us adopting in Burundi, there wasn't a financial challenge. Uh, Burundi just didn't have the structures in place to charge a lot of money like other countries do. Um, and the process itself wasn't uh, prohibitive for us, so that just wasn't uh, a challenge that we had to wrestle with. But I will say this. Um, I hope that when people consider adopting that it isn't, I don't think it should be the first question. You know, should I adopt? Should I not adopt? I think there are several questions that come first. Um, You know, I think of adoption as a a part of shalom, right? It's one structure um, in strengthening and repairing a broken neighborhood. But it's not the only way that we can participate in God's shalom in our communities. So I often encourage people to, even before they think of adoption, to, to think about what other ways that they could be contributing to Shalom.
2: Hmm.
1: You know, there are families that are on the brink of extreme poverty or falling into that across that poverty line. Are there ways that we could be advocating for better policies to support those families when it comes to wages or better resourced schools or, um, you know, the kind of, you know, snap and other assistance that could be helpful. Um, single parents are there ways that we could be coming alongside single parents um, as neighbors offering a little more child care support or um, understanding some of the challenges that are unique to single parents where we can be kind of an emissary of god shalom as these moms or dads are raising their kids on their own i just think there are many other ways that we can step in um, and help create belonging, (laughs) um, with other families and in our communities. Um, adoption is one way. It's a beautiful way, but it's not the only thing that we can do. So I always hope that people are asking some of those other questions first, um, because you need to know that adoption is, is what you're invited into. It's beautiful, but it is also complex and messy. Um, and so I always want to make sure <laughs> we don't just jump the, <laughs> to the thing that looks angelic or saintly or sexy yeah. in you know, in those kind of ways, but that we're doing the hard work of Shalom in our neighborhood before we even get to doing the harder, deeper work uh, that adoption invites us into.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's a, uh, it's not something that you, uh, well, I guess to say it positively, you, you do want to count the cost and, and really think about what you're doing before you just walk into it. Um, Cause like you said, yeah, you're bringing someone into your family. That, that person is now a member of your family, which is a big deal. So
1: absolutely, man.
0: Thank you so much. I think this, uh, this conversation is going to be incredibly helpful for those in our church who are, who have either already adopted and are, uh, working through issues or are thinking about it now, or maybe haven't thought about it and now are interested in it. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm thankful. And, uh, we will of course link to your book, uh, on the show page and in the show notes. So uh, I'd recommend anybody listening, go, go and grab that now. Uh, it's called uh, adopted the sacrament of belonging uh, in a fractured world. And um, yeah, let's, let's, let's end with a couple fun, rapid fire questions and then uh, we'll be done. Uh, sure. So the first one is this, what is your favorite TV show movie and or book that you've read or watched recently? Oh, I just got
1: done watching um game of Thrones okay i know i'm I'm late to the party, but i've kind of watched all seven seasons in about two and a half weeks <laughs> <laughs> but uh so that 's the most recent thing that i've seen that I kind of fell to the hole but if I had to say my favorite would always be the west wing. I just don't think anything has eclipsed the west wing in my in my thinking
0: okay okay nice those are those are uh, both great. I just finished season seven of Game of Thrones myself. Um, okay, iPhone, <laughs> iPhone or Android? iPhone. Glad to hear that. Uh, yeah. What's the best meal that you've had recently?
1: Uh, it was just down in Austin, Texas last weekend um, with uh, Jessica Godot, who's a friend that your sister and I have in common. Okay. And she took me to a restaurant where we had the most amazing tacos. It was carnitas, so this wonderfully slow-simmered, unctuous pork um, <laughs> inside of this wonderful homemade flour tortilla. I mean, it was just sometimes it's the most simple things, but that I really could have just kept going back to that same place for all the meals we had in Austin because – it didn't get better from there. It just, that was the pinnacle.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the name of the restaurant?
1: Yes. It was called taco flats,
0: taco flats. Okay. All right. So if anybody's making their way to Austin, check out taco flats. And I know that, uh, the taco competition in Austin is stiff. So that that's high praise. Yes.
1: And um, I had, I had several others, but none of them. Uh, yeah, that was the Zenith for sure.
0: <laughs> okay. Awesome. Um, What's the nerdiest thing that you're into right now? The thing that you kind of don't want to tell me about?
1: Oh, I don't. I don't know if I'm. I mean, my nerdy stuff is really that I. I really do read theology books for fun, and uh, <laughs> a lot of people find that to be nerdy. Like this summer, I read a book on. Oh, uh, somebody asked me, you know, what was the most fun thing you read? And it was like, well here's this book on socioeconomics in Second Temple Judea. And I was like so excited to, I found it in a footnote um in another book and I read it and I, I mean, I know it's kind of wonky and nobody else would probably find it fun, but that's the kind of stuff I can just, I just get so excited. So I get all my best book ideas, uh usually from the footnotes um of people like Walter Brueggemann and Ellen Davis and folks like that. So, Maybe that's it, is that I really am kind of hooked on footnotes. I'm the girl who reads all the footnotes and usually ends up going and buying half of the books they talk about, and uh, I'm kind of nerdy that way.
0: Okay, yeah, that, that okay, yeah. definitely qualifies. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what, um, what's the, the most maybe generally accessible theology book that you've read recently that you could recommend to folks?
1: Mm. Well, uh, speaking of Walter Brueggemann, uh, he's recently written a volume called Money and Possessions. Okay. And it's, you know, you would look at it, it's, it's a hardcover book, it's about 300 pages. But he just goes through, what does the Bible say about money? From Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Um, so he's kind of synthesizing, hmm. you know, what? what do you see in Genesis? What do we see in Exodus? What do we see in the Prophets? And it was so clarifying for me just to see, you know, he could, there's some big things we see, uh, but also, gosh, I didn't think that the Song of Solomon had anything to say about money. But lo and behold, it actually does give us some sense of how to think about economics. Huh. Uh, so I found that to be really helpful, um, very accessible, Um I got a lot of books from the footnotes. I have to confess,
2: the
1: <laughs> 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 one I just told you about. Um, but in this day and age, we live in such an affluent society that I think having some thoughtful responses to um, materialism and consumer, you know, consumerism, and really thinking through um, what we see in culture um, up against what we see in scripture. This was so helpful for me, and really enjoyable.
0: Yeah, that sounds. Yeah, that- Great. Actually. Yeah. I think we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes as well. And uh, folks can check that out. Yeah. Um, okay. Last rapid fire question. And I steal this Hmm. one from Tim Ferris. He asks his guests, if you could put a billboard anywhere in the world, (laughs) where would you put this billboard and what would it say?
1: Oh gosh. I'm terrible at these kind of things, James. (laughs) You're really putting me on the spot here.
0: (laughs) That's what everybody says with this question.
1: And yet people are able to give you really thoughtful, provocative answers, I bet. (laughs) No, not always.
0: No. In fact, I don't know if you know Derek Rishmawi, but his answer was was kind of pathetic. Okay. Yeah.
1: I'm trying to think it's location and message. So you've got both of those dynamics.
0: Yep. Yep. Would you put it in Arizona and say, stop looking at me and my kids that way? yeah <laughs>
1: hey that's not a bad one, but I was thinking I would probably at this day and age want to put a sign somewhere in the red state of Arizona mm. uh, and and say you know to, to welcome everyone mm. I think that actually I think the sign would would be a quote from Exodus, which is Remember when you were aliens mm. um I think that's something that in my red state, I wish we remembered more. That there, you know, we. It's not too long ago that we ourselves are aliens. I was just chatting with my mom a couple of weeks ago, and recognizing that her grandma Chona came across from Mexico. Um, of course, it would have been undocumented at the time. There was no documentation, but that makes my mom third generation. Um, immigrant in the states and I was like wow it's so interesting that we forget that we're only two or three generations removed from our own immigrant stories mm-hmm. and and if we had a better sense of that would it change would we be more compassionate um, towards one another um, and i think that's part of what uh, the exodus story asks us to do what god asks us is remember that you once were a vulnerable family too So that's, I think that's what I would do in my state is remember when you were aliens.
0: Great. Let me know where I can donate to, to getting that done. I'm, I'm in favor of that. (laughs) 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 Kelly, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it.
1: Well, thanks James. It was great to meet you.
0: Great to have you on. All right. All right, that'll do it for this month's episode of the Park Church Podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. Uh, and don't forget, you can go to parkchurchdenver.org slash podcast and find uh, the interview with Kelly there. You can find the show notes uh, and find links to everything that we talked about today. I'd really encourage you to go pick up her new book. I think you will uh, love that. And if you have a minute, uh, I would love for you to hop into iTunes and rate and review us there. If you're enjoying the show, that is the best and easiest way to help other people find it. Of course, you can also post on uh, your social media accounts or text a friend. Maybe you know somebody who's interested in adoption and you think that they would like this episode. Take a moment now and share it with them. Uh, If you have any thoughts, or questions, or concerns, or ways to make this podcast better, I'd love to hear from you. You can always email me at james at org, and uh, that'll do it for this month. I'll see y'all next month. Take care.